Matthew 26, beginning with verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into, judge, into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning that you may instruct us, that you may teach us, you may guide us, you may encourage us. Perhaps, O oh Lord, you may even convict us of this scene that takes place here uh, in the garden. Oh, Father, we pray that uh, you would be pleased to meet each one of us where we are. And it is our earnest desire, O oh Lord, that we would hear from your, from your very lips, O oh Father, that we would hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, last fall, uh, Donald and I had the wonderful privilege of going to a conference in Charleston, and uh, the, the conference was put on by a, uh, a coalition known as the Alliance of the uh, Confessing Evangelicals, and the speaker at the conference was uh, an ARP pastor. His name is uh, Dr. Derek Thomas, and his subject that he spoke on was assurance, and his chief text uh, was John 17, which uh, has become to be called by the church Jesus' high priestly prayer. And uh, incidentally, uh, that uh, prayer takes place on the very same night that we've been studying for the last few weeks. Uh, Dr. Thomas introduced John 17 by saying that this is holy ground. And in a sense, we could say that about all of Scripture because all of Scripture is God's Word. But in another sense, we don't want those words to become trite. Uh, so we, we reserve those kinds of words for certain texts. But I would submit to you this morning, we've come to one of those kinds of texts. And I would even go one step farther than saying this is holy ground. I would say that we should, figuratively speaking, take our shoes off because we are trotting on holy ground this morning as we come to this text. The great orator Charles Spurgeon 
speaking of this text, once said that no man can rightly expound this text, but this text is better meant for broken-hearted, prayerful meditation, not for human language. And having wrestled with this text more so than I've wrestled with a text for a long time, I, I concur uh, wholeheartedly with Charles Spurgeon's estimate of this text. Nowhere in Scripture do we see the humanity of Jesus like we see here uh, in uh, this scene in the garden. Uh, my approach this morning is going to be very simple. The, the simpler the better uh, is to, to, to the best of my abilities to try to develop this text and from there draw a few lessons uh, from it. Uh, the sermon title is very simple, Lessons from Gethsemane. Uh, very, very simple. Uh, when we look at verse 36, we see Jesus, uh, he went with them, that is his disciples, uh, 11 of his disciples. You'll recall uh, Judas Iscariot has already uh, departed. He has his own business to take care of. He's uh, taking care of his own matters, uh, namely betraying Jesus and carrying out the betrayal. Uh, Jesus went with his 11 disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Uh, last week, I made mention of this. Uh, Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room. They exit out of Jerusalem on the eastern side of the city. They cross the valley known as the Kidron Valley, and they go to the base, really kind of the footing of the Mount of Olives, to a place called Gethsemane Grove. And uh, somewhere uh, in this grove, there was a garden known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane actually means oil press, uh, is actually the name, is what the name means. And uh, undoubtedly, there was an oil press there at the time of Jesus that was used uh, at the harvest time. Uh, when the olives uh, were ripe and, and picked, uh, the olives would be brought to that press and they would be pressed into uh, olive oil. Uh, we can presume that uh, the area was fenced off uh, it probably was a gate, and that is probably where Jesus leaves uh, eight of his disciples anyway, is uh, at uh, that gate. Uh, we would also presume that the garden was secluded and probably was quite beautiful. It was probably the kind of place where you'd like to go to be along with God. Uh, John 18.2 makes it very clear uh, that Jesus went there often with his disciples uh, to pray. Uh, so it is into this garden that they go. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, that is eight of them, he tells them to sit here. I presume the here is probably near the entrance uh, into the garden. Uh, I, I think it's Luke that tells us that Jesus goes approximately a stone throw away. Uh, we're told that he, in verse 37, that he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him. Uh, the two sons of Zebedee would be James and John. Uh, so it's... Uh, uh, Peter, James, and John are extracted from the eleven, and they're brought a little bit further with Jesus. And we've seen that before, haven't we? Uh, where uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, it's, it seems kind of clear that there's an inner circle within the disciples. Uh, Jesus loves the disciples. He loves them all. There's no partiality in God. Uh, but uh, there, there's a sense in which Jesus draws Peter, James, and John uh, close to him. We saw that when Jesus went up onto the mounts. Uh, for what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, who does Jesus take with him? Peter, James, and John. As Jesus is 
entering into the garden a little further, a stone's throw away. Uh, he says to Peter, James, and John in verse 37, um, or actually uh, he begins to be sorrowful and troubled in verse 37. He says in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Um, the, the word that's translated very sorrowful uh, is, is, is it's a strong word. Uh, it, it means extremely sorrowful. It, it means sorrowful to the point of death. And there's a sense in this verse where there's some repetition. Uh, Jesus says that he is sorrowful, very sorrowful, sorrowful even to the point of death. And then he adds even to death. There's a sense here where there's some repetition. Uh, make no mistake about it, if we would have been uh, originally reading this in, in the Greek language, I think we would have seen that repetition, that sense of repetition. Uh, Jesus is in absolute agony here. Uh, agony that's beyond description. And we should guess that because uh, as Jesus uh, conducts himself throughout the Holy Land, uh, he never complains, does he? Can you think of a single time where Jesus ever grumbled or complained? Oftentimes, he, he bears these things in silence. Uh, but his agony at this point has reached such a point that he at least shares with Peter, James, and John, uh, shares the agony that he's experiencing. Now, I want to ask a question of this text right now, and a question might seem kind of silly as to why I'm asking it, but I think before we're done, you'll see that there's, there, there's an important point to be made in asking this question. So at the onset, you might think I'm kind of silly uh, when I say, why is Jesus in so much agony? Somebody say, Rick, that's the silliest thing I think I've ever heard you ask. I mean, the disciples are going to betray him. He knows it. He knows they're going to scatter. Uh, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows the cross is coming. He, he, know, I, he has full knowledge of the, of the agony that waits before him. He's going to be humiliated. He's going, you know the rest. You know it quite well. So why would I ask such a silly question? It's because I want to make a connection between this passage and the passage that went last week. And it's easy to lose this connection. Because our minds go to the cross very quickly and there's nothing wrong with that. Don't stop that. Your mind should go to the cross very quickly. I don't want to change that. I just want to add something to it. You remember last week when we looked at the text... In verse 31, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. You remember that? We spent a lot of time developing that, didn't we? You will all fall away, is what he says to the disciples. And they're going to fall away because of Jesus. Imagine hearing that. But Jesus becomes, he gets very specific in verse 31. He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And we spent a lot of time developing that. We discovered that that is a prophecy that was uttered by Zechariah, and it's found in Zechariah 13, 7. You don't need to turn there. Just listen with me as I read that passage. Again, uh, this utterance uh, uh, reads this way, Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. We stopped there last week and we asked a couple of questions, the kind of questions we want to ask when we're studying our Bibles. Who's speaking? The Lord of hosts is speaking. Almighty God is speaking. 
What is he saying? Awake, O sword. What is he doing? He's summoning the sword. Well, summoning the sword against who? My shepherd, the one who stands close to me. Who's that? Of course, it's Jesus. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What's going on in the garden? You meditate on this for a little while and see if you can do it without weeping. Jesus has been struck. He's been struck. And there he is in this agony that we can't even begin to describe. Luke tells us that the agony was so awful that blood begins to come out of his pores. And I would submit to you that the blood is already beginning to be shed. So we find the first thing we see in here is Jesus in awful agony. What does Jesus do about this agony? What does he do? Verse 38, he asks the disciples to watch with him. Watch with him. Verse 39, going a little farther, it's almost as if he's in so much agony he doesn't really want them to see. He goes a little further. He falls on his face and he prays. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's anywhere else in the gospel where Jesus falls on his face in prayer. I think this is the only place. Please, somebody correct me if I'm wrong on that. What's he do? He prays. He seeks the Father. Out of his agony, what does he say? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He prays, doesn't he? Not once. He prays over and over again. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He doesn't pray once or twice, but he prays three times. Um, if you look at verse 44. Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. And the first prayer presumably lasted about an hour. Uh, we know this because Jesus leaves Peter, James, and John, and he goes and he prays. And he comes back to discover that they're sleeping. And he rebukes Peter, saying, couldn't you stay awake for an hour? So I think we can gather from that that the first, the, 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 the first prayer lasted about an hour. I don't know how long the second and third prayer lasted. But Jesus, out of his agony, he goes in prayer. Jesus' prayers are answered. There's a, there's a really mysterious verse in Luke 22 and verse 43 where we're told that an angel is dispatched from heaven uh, to come and, and strengthen Jesus. Get your mind around that. An angel comes to strengthen Jesus. Uh, we'd love to, we'll spend some time on that one of these days. I'm tempted to go into it now, but um, let's, stick with, <laughs> let's stick with Matthew uh, this morning and just say right now that Jesus is indeed, his prayer is answered. That's an important point that we're going to look at in a little bit. So Jesus goes into the garden. He's in agony. 
It's an agony of soul. It's a, a deep kind of agony, a deep penetrating agony into the depths of the inner person. And again, we learn so much about the humanity of Jesus. We learn from this text that, he, that Jesus is a human just like us who has a soul. Uh, as a catechism, uh, question number 22 will teach us when we get to that place in our Wednesday night Bible studies. We're not that far away uh, where we're told that Jesus had a reasonable soul. Uh, this is one of the places where we, uh, we learn this about Jesus. The last thing that we look at in developing our text is the incredible love. If you look with me, uh, you'll see the incredible love that Jesus has uh, for the Father. If you look at verse 39, and you look at his prayer, he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Uh, famous words we've all heard before. Uh, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, Father, if there's some other way, I'm all ears here. But not as I will, uh, as you will. And we see the tremendous amount of love that Jesus has for the Father here because He is not willing. He is not willing to deviate any from the will of the Father. He loves the Father so much that His submission and surrender to the Father is perfect. Remember what Jesus says to His disciples and through His disciples what He's saying to us. If you love Me, you will what? You will obey My commandments. We see this perfect love that Jesus has for the Father. It might make us think of a couple of verses uh, from John, if I might turn just to a couple of verses and read them for you. John chapter 6, uh, uh, verse 39. Uh, and this is the will of Him who sent me. Jesus is speaking here. And Jesus is saying, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Then he goes on to say, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and will raise Him up on the last day. And in chapter 5 and verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing of, on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And from these verses, we see that we see the great love that Jesus has for the Father but we also see the great love that Jesus has for his people. Why is he in this position? He's carrying out the will of the Father. What will is that? That not one single person who has been given to Jesus be lost. And it's all up to Jesus at this point, isn't it? It is all up to Jesus. And he is in the garden, and he is determined to perfectly carry out the will of the Father with perfect submission. Well, what do we see there? The great love of, of Jesus for the Father, the great love of Jesus for his people. Jesus truly loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loves his neighbor as himself. Now, with this... Uh, development, uh, even as poor as it has been, uh, we can still see some lessons from this, can't we? Uh, first lesson, I mean, you can take your pick. There's quite a few here, but uh, the first lesson I think that uh, should probably be mentioned is that we're never going to know the agony uh, that Jesus endured here. 
And when I say we are never going to know the agony, uh, the we here are the true children of God. That's all I'm directing that comment to. I'm directing that comment to true believers. If we're truly in Christ Jesus, we're never going to know the agony that Jesus uh, endured here. And even if we're not in Christ Jesus, uh, we're certainly not going to be punished for any more sins than our own. It's important that we understand that the death of Jesus is not like any other death. Many men and women have gone calmly to their uh, to their grave. I mean, history books are full of those kinds of testimonies, and once in a while in the news, we'll see things of this matter. People just calmly go to their graves for one cause or for another. But we shouldn't think of the death of Jesus that way. Jesus is not simply just passing from the door of life into, from this life uh, uh, into the next life. He's not simply just passing through the door of death. Uh, there's much more going on in that. What's taking place is the sins of his people are being placed upon Jesus. What's going on here is Jesus is staring right down at the wrath of God. And nobody, nobody will calmly endure that. So none of us are ever going to know. Uh, those who are in Christ Jesus are never going to know the agony that he endured. And that is a blessing, isn't it? That's the point. You see, he's enduring it so that we don't have to. It's almost unimaginable, isn't it? The next thing we might point out is something that we've already focused on with our scripture memory verse this morning in verse 41. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There's a clear command of Jesus, clear instruction of Jesus to be watchful and prayerful for the express purpose of not entering into temptation. Uh, be watchful and prayerful. If, 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 if this hour, uh, undoubtedly, Jesus uh, uh, had to have faced some temptation uh, to not want to go through with this. Uh, there had to have been some temptation. Of course, he's victorious over the temptation, but he's showing us as a perfect man uh, how we overcome temptation, isn't he? How do you overcome temptation? You nip it right in the bud. You nip it before it gets any seat. Uh, these points are, uh, I'm going to be brief with these points. These points are sermons in themselves. Uh, e each one of these points could be a, ser a sermon, and some of them could be a sermon series. Uh, but just say this for now. Uh, temptation should be nipped in the bud. How? By being watchful. Watchful for the temptation. What do we do as soon as we, as soon as we experience it, as soon as we notice it? What does Jesus do? He goes to God in prayer. Immediately. Now, if Jesus, the perfect, sinless one, had to operate like this, chose to operate like this, how much more should we operate like this? How much more do we need this instruction? We also see that God answers prayer. You know, sometimes you'll hear people talk about this text, and you'll hear people say, I've heard, I've heard preachers say this, I've heard others say this, that uh, God doesn't answer all prayer. In fact, He... Uh, once upon a time, he didn't even answer Jesus' prayer. And they'll point to this text and say, well, Jesus asked for this cup to be taken away from him, and it wasn't taken away from him. Uh, and the conclusion is God did not answer his prayer. I, I always hate to hear that. Let's think this through just a little bit here. Jesus' prayer is answered. It's answered mightily. Uh, Luke, uh, 
Chapter 22, verse 43 tells us that the Father sends an angel uh, to strengthen Jesus. Jesus would like there to be another way at this point. Who wouldn't want there to be another way at this point? But He is, he is reserved. He is committed to carrying out the will of the Father. Whatever that will is, that is ultimately what Jesus wants, isn't it? He wants that more than, than, being, uh, than this cup being taken away. He proves it by going through with it. So we should never think that Jesus' prayer wasn't answered here. His prayer was answered. He received this strengthening grace in that hour. And our prayers, too, will always be answered. But here's the thing we need to understand about prayer, is that um, sometimes the answer is no. Jesus asks for another way. Something in here drives my allergies nuts. I apologize. Jesus asks for there to be another way, and there is no other way. And what does Jesus do? We know the rest, don't we? So we see a lot about prayer here. If you look at verse 41 again, <clears throat> notice that Jesus says the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. What does that mean? Uh, well, Peter gives us a great analogy. If we just go back to the text uh, that's uh, right before us, and we should always be looking at the context when we're seeking what Scripture means. When Jesus says, you all fall away because of me this night, what does Peter say? Peter says, no, never. In fact, he, we, we, we spend a lot of time talking about this. He said, oh, you know, all these other characters might fall away, uh, but I am not going to fall away. In fact, I'm going to follow you even if I uh, must go to my grave following you. That's what Peter says, right? And I, I made a comment last week that, that when Peter says this, he, meant, he means this. Peter's not speaking out of hypocrisy here. He really, truly means this. He, he really, truly means that he's determined to follow Jesus. His spirit is willing. Uh, spirit in this, in this context means that which animates a person. Our spirit, uh, or our soul, if you will, they're synonyms, um, means that which animates us. Your spirit, your soul, is that which makes you, you. It's your inner person. Uh, in the inner person, uh, uh, Peter means this. And when Jesus says the spirit is willing, let's remember who Jesus is talking to here. Context is always so important. He is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those who are following him. Because apart from Christ, our spirit's not willing. Uh, we're not willing to follow Jesus anywhere. We're not willing to give uh, Jesus two thoughts apart from Jesus. But once we're in Christ Jesus, once we become followers of Christ Jesus, yes, we have these willing spirits, but there's a problem, isn't there? The flesh is weak. We've all probably experienced this. I would think if you're in Christ Jesus, you've experienced this over and over again, where you have this determination in your mind and in your heart that you're going to do this certain thing. And in no time, what happens? We fail, don't we? Have we all experienced that? Human flesh. We're weak, aren't we? We're frail. So we learn a lot. We, when we look into the garden here and we look at the uh, apostles here, and we see them sleeping. Uh, we're really looking into a mirror. We see a lot about ourselves here, don't we? Would we have stayed awake if we'd have been in the garden? That was a hard night. Luke tells us that they were sleeping for sorrow. We can understand that. They have had some hard things. Some tough things are happening. I'd have been asleep. Would you have been asleep? 
couple other things and uh, we'll wrap this up. These next two things are the most important things. Uh, I would say that the next thing is notice how Jesus, if you look at the text, uh, notice how Jesus uh, deals with his disciples. You know, when he comes into the garden, he's coming into the garden, he begins to experience this, this agony. Who does he want with him? Who does he want around him? The 11, huh? Who are the 11? They're the ones that are soon going to be scattering. They're the ones that are going to abandon him. Does Jesus not know this? Yes, he knows this. He told them that's what's going to happen. But he still wants them with him. And when Jesus leaves the eight at the gate, presumably, of the garden, and he goes into the garden a little bit further, who does he take with him? James and John and Peter. What's so significant about that? What did Jesus just get done saying here this night? Peter, you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice, but three times. If it had been one of us, we probably would have said, hey, James and John, you guys want to come with me? That Peter, you stay right where you're at. I know what you're going to do. It's bad enough that James and John are going to scatter, but you're going to deny me three times. You just stay where you stay out here with the other eight. It's not what he does, is it? He brings the three with him with full knowledge of what they're going to do. And don't get the impression from this that Jesus doesn't care. Why is he in agony? It's because the sins of these men, as well as our own sins, are being placed on his record. Jesus is in no way compromising his perfect justice, his perfect holiness, or his perfect righteousness. But all of this having been said, look how gracious Jesus is. And what's the application of that? Do you have any things that you've done recently that you really regret? Do you have some things that you've done maybe a long time ago you wish you could go back and change? Have you ever felt the pangs of that guilt and shame and regret of those things? This text is yours then. Because here we see the gracious and compassionate nature of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul tells us that it is His kindness that leads us to repentance. This is ours. Look how He handles with the disciples. He wants them around. He doesn't exclude them. We see the grace of God in this text, don't we? And lastly, and I've already developed this enough, I just want to mention again, we see the great love that Jesus has for the Father and the great love that He has for us. If you've never repented of your sins before, don't stop today. Look at this. Look at this text. What more could Jesus do to display his love to us than, than this? Look at his kindness and his compassion and look at his direction. Prayer. A lot more could be said, but we'll... We'll leave that for another time, okay?
Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this picture that we have here uh, in the garden, uh, uh, one that is so beyond, uh, as Spurgeon said, it's, it's, it's so beyond our abilities to expound and exposit. But, O Lord, it is not beyond your abilities to put a picture in our hearts of what is taking place here, O Father, and I pray that you would take that picture and place it in each one of our hearts that it would be there forever, uh, that we would see uh, just what, O Father, you, you have done in Christ Jesus, what Jesus has done in our place uh, in this garden, and that, O Father, uh, we would glean these lessons from this, that we would glean the grace from this to become true children of God and to grow uh, in our walk with you. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.